All right, welcome. Um, my name is Mario, and we are continuing the series that we have been in called Life of Paul. This is now part seven of like the second iteration of this series, and I wanted to let you know where we were in his life and wanted to tell you a little bit about the kind of geography of the area of what's happening in this story so that you kind of picture it. So I want to put up a map so you can see it. Um, we are at the point in Paul's life where he is in his second missionary journey. His, this journey began, I don't know, approximately where I'm standing relative to this map, off the map over in Syria is where it began. And he went into an area called Cilicia and then in another area called Galatia and then went through this area here, through Charles and Neapolis, which are port cities, and then went to Philippi. And Philippi is the town that we've been talking about these past couple of weeks, for those of you who have been here. You remember Philippi? The last two Sundays, we talked about the things that happened in Philippi and the Philippians. And the reason that the green like, trail keeps going is because now today we add on the next part. He goes from Philippi to Thessalonica. And so today's going to be about Paul's adventures in Thessalonica. But I wanted you to be able to picture what's happening. I want you to be able to see. Um, do you remember last week I said Philippi is in an area called Macedonia? Do you remember that? So you can see Philippi is in Macedonia, but there are a couple of other cities that are also in Macedonia that play a role in Paul's life. And I guess I didn't realize this last, last week, that they were all in the same place called Macedonia. So Philippi is considered a Macedonian city, but so is Thessalonica, which Paul plants a church there, and Berea. And so I, and there's, I kind of made a little mistake last week, um, and I wanted to correct it this week. Last week I told you um, that Paul went to Philippi, and it was in Macedonia, which is true. And then I told you Paul went back to Macedonia three times, according to the book of Acts. You remember that? And that was true. But I made it sound like every single time he went back to Macedonia, he went back to Philippi. And that's the part I don't know for sure, because there are two other cities that he did stuff in in Macedonia. So the Macedonians, like when the Bible talks about the Macedonians, it's talking about the Philippians and or the, Thess the Thessalonians and or the Bereans. And so when I say that Paul went to Macedonia three times, I guess I don't know for sure he went to Philippi three times. I know for sure he went there the first time, because the passage says it. And the third time that he went to Macedonia, it also brings up Philippi. It says that he sailed away from Philippi. Um, so the one I wasn't sure of is the second time he goes to Macedonia, it doesn't specify which city. So if I were being really precise last week, I would have said that instead of saying he went to uh, Philippi three times, I would have said he went to Philippi at least two times, maybe three. Okay, so I know some of you go, we don't even care about corrections like that. And I say, I, I know, I, don't, I do. Okay, I, I want you to believe what I say, and so I try to correct errors when I make them. So um, this is the area. So the Macedonians, he's already dealt with Macedonians, and now he has traveled, or at least what I'm about to read to you will show you this. He travels about 90 miles southwest to Thessalonica. And so today's passage is going to be um, the, the arrival of the gospel at Thessalonica, or the arrival of Paul at Thessalonica. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. And we're going to start with verse 1. Acts 17.1 says, Then they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, doing the thing on the map we just showed you, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Then some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. So let's go ahead and go through it verse by verse, starting with verse 2, which is what happens when he gets to Thessalonica. Starting in verse 2, it's, what's the first two words of verse 2? As usual. So what is Paul doing here? He's doing what he typically does. And if you've been with us for this whole series, you may remember back on his first missionary trip, what he does is similar to this, because this is what he did usually, right? He went through the island of Cyprus. He went to a town called Antioch of Pisidia. Multiple times he would do this. He would go. Paul's strategy 
as far as missionary work goes, is he would go to these cities that he'd never been to before. He didn't know any people there, and he would start with the group of people that he had the most connection to, right? He started the people that he had the most like cultural and social connection to. He was a Jewish man. He was a rabbi. And so he would show up at these synagogues, and there would be his people, the people of the same ethnicity as him, the people who had the same beliefs as him. In fact, it seems to me that he kind of was a traveling rabbi in the sense that when he went from synagogue to synagogue, the way I'm reading the story, it sure seems like he was invited to be like the guest speaker many times when he went from synagogue to synagogue in these cities. So he starts in these places with his connections. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue in Thessalonica. Um, and it says that he, um, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he's talking to these people. And the, I think another reason that he goes to the synagogue first is not, not only for strategic reasons. I think there's probably a theological reason in it for him. When you read some of the other things that Paul writes in other parts of the Bible, it seems like theologically he believed, at least he talks this way, like he acts like he believed that he owed the gospel to the Jewish people first. That these people in the Old Testament, God's people, they are Israel, they've been waiting for a Messiah. They've been waiting for this person who's going to come restore the kingdom. He's going to restore um, Israel. And so they've been waiting. And, and when he realized, oh, Jesus is the Messiah, he seemed to believe that he owed it to them first. Your Messiah has come, right? The Savior of Israel has arrived. And then he would do that. And then once they rejected him, or if they rejected him, which was like almost every single time, he would then go to the Gentiles and then say, okay, he's actually the Savior of the whole world. He's your Savior too. He's your Lord also. And so that's the typical pattern. So as usual, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scripture. So it looks like he got the opportunity to do like a three-week series. And he's, and he's talking to them from the Bible, from the Old Testament, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. When I read this, it matches what I understand as far as the synagogue model. That the way that things were, the way that Jewish people in the Roman Empire time period would worship and the way they kind of did their religious duties a lot of times I think was they would live their lives and then they would build a place okay they would build a building and then they would go to that place once a week okay on the sabbath so every 7 days they show up at a building that was made for a particular purpose and they go into the building and that's where they worship that's where they pray to god that might be where they sing psalms it's where somebody would get up and read the scripture out loud Maybe somebody else would get up and give an exhortation or a teaching of the scripture. Sometimes it might be the same person who read the scripture that was the teacher, and sometimes it might be somebody else. But the point is, you have this sort of model or this system of worship where these people, once every seven days, go to a building set aside for this purpose, and they learn the Bible, and they pray these prayers, and then here we are 2,000 years later, and we go, well, that sort of sounds like something I've heard of before, right? And it could very well be that the way churches are to this day trace their like system or their model or their way of doing um, church all the way back to the synagogue model that you have like the people in this you know the people that are christians nowadays tend to do like what they were what they inherited from the generation before them and and the generation before them does the same thing but if you go back far enough you have like the original christians and what did they inherit what did they know like all especially the the early jewish ones that all believed in jesus well how did they worship jesus once they believed in him probably a lot of them defaulted to the system that they knew about. We go to the building one day and we show up and we pray the prayers and someone teaches us from the Bible. And so that may be, that seems to be what, what happened back then. That seems to be what's going on with Paul here and it might be even affecting us to this day. So he goes into this place and he says to them, let me teach you what the scriptures say. And this is what he chooses to focus on, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Why did he focus on that? 
Why was that the thing he decided to teach them, right? He tells them that Jesus is the Messiah, but when he focuses on it, he wants to show them that the scriptures show that he had to suffer and rise again. Why didn't he show up and say, uh, there's a, a, a great big God and he created the whole world? Well, they already believed that. Why didn't he say that the God that exists is a good God and he has a good plan for your life? They already believed that. Why didn't he get up and say, um, there, there's a God and he cares about sin and he gets angry when people sin? Or there's a God and he forgives people when they sin? They believed that. They knew that already. I think the reason he starts with explaining and showing the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead is because that was the sticking point. That was the thing they were going to have a pro- problem with. That was the thing they were, they were going to have a hard time believing. That when he says, Jesus is the Messiah, you can imagine they would say, the Messiah? Like he's, he's already come? Yes. Well, where is he? Oh, well, he's already gone. So he came and gone? Yeah, he ascended. Well, what happened while he was here? Well, they killed him. They killed him? Yeah, on a cross, like a criminal. Hmm. Doesn't that show you that he's not the Messiah? Like, I think that's what they would have done, right? They would have said, don't you realize, like, the Old Testament shows that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to restore everything. He's going to make everything right. The fact that they crucified him, shouldn't, shouldn't that have hinted to you that the guy you thought the Messiah was not? And so Paul's trying to make it clear, no, no, I want to show you from the scripture that the Messiah had to suffer. That wasn't, that wasn't an alteration to the plan. That was the plan all along. But I could see that that would be the difficulty for them, that they would go, how is the world that he, he died? If the Messiah has come and gone, why is Rome still in charge? Why hasn't Israel been restored and growing all over the world? And why isn't our religion spreading all over the world? Why isn't the glory of God and everybody worshiping Yahweh and the glory of God spreading across the world like the waters cover the sea? Like, isn't that what the Old Testament said? And so I think this is the thing he wanted to show that, no, I gosh, this is all part of the plan. The suffering had to happen so that he died on the, for our sins. So I don't know which verses he used because the passage does not say. It just says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. If you want to know, like, what is it that he said, if you want to try to imagine it, um, I mean, I can't tell you what he said. We don't know. But if you, if you have a Bible, you can go back, hmm, one, two, three, four, four pages. And in Acts chapter 13, you see Paul in a very similar situation. And you can imagine, this is probably the kind of thing he did in um, Thessalonica because what he did in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13 was he went to the synagogue first. And then he stood up in the synagogue and he taught the people. And the, the record of his sermon in Antioch is recorded for us in Acts chapter 13, unlike here, right? What he said is written down. And what he said talked about Jesus suffering and, and rising from the dead. So we can kind of imagine the stuff he said because we have another occasion where he talked like this. Um, I don't know what passages in the Old Testament he used, but another thing you can do if you want to know about the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus' suffering Um, Isaiah 53, I think, is probably the best place in the whole Old Testament as far as finding a spot in the Old Testament where you have verse after verse after verse after verse describing Jesus really well 600 years before he was born. Um, if you look at uh, Isaiah 53, a lot of times it's read about Easter time, you can see that this, this, there, was this, there was this one who was going to die in the place of sinners for their sins. So I don't know what scripture he used, but, but he says this, that's what he does. He explains and shows them that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Okay? So he declares the Messiah, and then what happens? Next verse, verse 4. Then some of them, like in reaction to his proclamation, then some of them were persuaded. That means they believed him and joined Paul and Silas. That means they converted, right? They became Christians. They became followers um, of what Paul and Silas were, were proclaiming. Who were these people who, who believed and were converted? It says it was including a great number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. It's interesting that Luke specifies these two groups. You know, why didn't he just say, and a bunch of people? 
became followers of Jesus. He specifies there were two, like the, the people had something in common. They were, there's like two different groups of people that there was a bunch of them that believed. And one of them is this, a number of the leading women. Who are the leading women, right? What did they lead? Who are these people? I mean, I don't know their names, but you can tell like this is in that society, in Roman society, there were women who were upper class and or influential in society. And once you realize that, I mean, for me, I was wondering this week if women were more influential in Roman society than many of us suppose. I think there are a lot of us that just assume back then, oh, that was 2,000 years ago, and nobody cared about women, and they had no voice, and nobody ever listened to them. But if you actually look at the book of Acts, in this case, there are leading women who are prominent in the city, and this is not the first time they've been talked about. Um, Luke brings up this category of person earlier in the story, too. I want to show it to you back in verse Uh, chapter 13, because I think it shows something that, I don't know, we wouldn't assume otherwise. Acts chapter 13, verse 50, this is a different occasion. This is, I don't know, maybe a year, year or two earlier. This is on his first missionary journey. He's in Antioch of Pisidia, and something happens in this particular account that is very similar to what happens in Thessalonica. And the Jewish people get angry, and they try to get all the people in the town angry at Paul. And this is what it says they did, Acts 13, 50. But the Jews incited the prominent women who worshiped God, and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. It's interesting that in this particular city, on this particular occasion, they start with the prominent women and try to get them. We need to get you on our team, on our anti-Paul, kick him out of town team. If women had no voice and nobody listened to them and they had no influence in society, wouldn't it just say that they got the leading men of the city and they kicked them out? No, they said, we got to get all the women in town that everybody listens to, and we got to get them on our side, and we got to kick these people out of town. So it's very interesting that there were prominent women who affected the culture of the cities that they were in, even back then, right? So now we move to Acts chapter 17, and we see the same type of person in a town, but this time they're on the other side, right? This time, the number of leading women were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. They're not trying to kick him out of town. They were the people who believed him and were on his side in this town. Um, The other group that's mentioned is a great number of God-fearing Greeks, what is a God-fearing Greek, right? I mean, this doesn't seem obvious what that is, but Luke uses terms like this all throughout the book of Acts, and if you read them over and over again, you start to notice, like, it seems that God-fearing Greeks is a term that is used for Gentiles who worship the God of the Old Testament. That they were not Jewish people by ethnicity, right? They were Greeks, but they believed in the God of the Old Testament, and they were worshiping him. Maybe they were hanging around synagogues, and they were listening to Old Testament readings, and they were worshiping the Yahweh of the Old Testament. I'm guessing that they weren't circumcised yet. They hadn't fully become... Jewish, but they were the God-fearers, fears of the God of the Jews. They were believing in him. And so it looks like that's the group of people here. A lot of them are people who converted and believed Paul and Silas. That's another group of people also that have been mentioned throughout the story, and I want to show you why I think, what I think about them. If you go back to chapter 13, um, in verse 16, we have a real similar situation. Paul is in a synagogue, and he stands up in the synagogue, and he motioned with his hand, I don't know what motion, probably something better than that. Um, He he does something with his hand, and then he starts speaking. And what does he say? He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. I don't think he's being redundant. I think he's talking to two groups of people. I think he's saying, men of Israel, I want you to listen, and also you who fear God. Well, who are those people? Are you, are, you, are you saying there's men of Israel and then the people who fear God are this other group? Like, do, do the men of Israel not fear God? No, I think it's assumed, of course, the men of Israel fear God. Goodness gracious, these are Jewish people in a synagogue. It's a given that you fear God. But we're saying there are some of you here that are not Jewish, 
But, but you also fear our God, and I'm talking to you also. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. He does it again, like 10 verses later, same occasion, verse 26. He says, brothers, sons of Abraham's race and those among you who fear God, the message of this salvation has been sent to us. The salvation has been sent to who? It seems like he's saying to the Israelites and also to those of you who are, you're not one of us, but you, you fear our God, you worship him. This salvation is for both of you, both groups, all of you. So back to the Thessalonians, back to, or at least back to the, the <clears throat> Acts chapter 17 when he's in Thessalonica. It says, so he persuaded, they, some of them first persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, um, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks and uh, as well a number of the leading women. And these conversions that we see, um, where are we right now? Oh, I wasn't quite ready for this verse yet. That's fine. Just keep it up. I'm, I'll get there real fast. So these conversions happen with the God-fearing Greeks and with the leading women, and the Jewish people that are there do not like it at all, get very, very frustrated, okay? These are, maybe these are our potential clients. I don't know how they view this situation, but they do not like the success that Paul and Silas are having religiously in their town among them. So they get very, I mean, the, 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 these conversions set them off into a jealous rage. So, verse 5. Now you put it on 4. Go back to 5. I told you I was getting there. All right, verse 5. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out into the public assembly. So they're getting together, these people. They're all angry. Verse 6. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has received them as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The Jews stirred up the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. So, taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. So, what's going on here? Again, we'll just go... Just a little bit at a time. First of all, it starts off with them saying that they gathered scoundrels from the marketplace and they formed a mob, right? This is a common tactic. I think this happens all throughout history. I think this happens still to this day, okay? If you cannot persuade people, you attack them. You've seen it, right? You got two different people and this is what I say and this is what I say and they're fighting it out and then at some point when one person perceives themselves to be losing the persuasion battle, they use aggression, and so that's what's happening here. So the Jewish people in this particular city, they form a mob, they start a riot with the intention of dragging Paul and Silas out of the house that they were staying in, into the public square, in front of the city officials, to punish them, to try to punish them legally, right? To say that they are criminals and they've done these things wrong, and so we want the government on our side to punish these people for what they've done. So they go down to the house, and they go to drag them out. Now, whose house is it? Anybody remember? Jason. Okay, who in the, who's Jason? It's, it's an unusual passage because unlike other passages where it tells you what the person is, like this one just acts like you already know who him. They're at Jason's house. You know, we're supposed to be going like, oh, okay. Um, it doesn't say who Jason is, but if you read the story, as best as I can figure it out, the, way, the, the role that Jason plays in the story, as best as I can tell, Jason in Thessalonica is the equivalent of Lydia in Philippi. Remember for her from last week? Lydia was this woman that was there in Philippi. Paul and Silas show up, and she's one of the first converts. They share the gospel with her. She believes, and then she says, if you really think that, I mean, if you really believe that I believe, then why don't you come and stay at my house? And as best as we can tell, while Paul and Silas were in Philippi, they stayed at Lydia's house. Lydia's house seems to be like the headquarters of Paul and Silas's ministry in Philippi. Then they leave Philippi, and they go to Thessalonica, and what happens, according to the story? Well, there's a guy named Jason, 
And he apparently is an early convert of Paul and Silas. He believes in Jesus. And it doesn't say, but apparently he said, you can stay at my house. Because when the mob said, let's go find them, they knew where to go. They knew where it was. Apparently Jason's house was the headquarters of Paul and Silas's ministry when they were in Thessalonica. Right? So you got Lydia's house in Philippi. Now we got Jason's house in Thessalonica. So the bad guys know. Okay, there it is. So they go and they start pounding on the door. And what happens? Paul and Silas aren't there. Right? It says, when they did not find them, them being Paul and Silas. Why weren't they there? I don't know. Maybe Jason answers the door, and they go, where's Paul and Silas? And maybe Jason goes, they're not here. And maybe Jason knows where they are. Maybe he's like, you know, they're five houses down hiding in someone's shed, but I'm not going to tell you that, right? Or maybe he doesn't know. Maybe it's just they're out right now. You know, they're just, they were, they're grocery shopping, or they're doing whatever they're doing, and they're not here right now. But whatever it is, they weren't there, and these riotous people, of course, are going to be really emotional and all jacked up on adrenaline and everything, right? And so what do they do? They don't go, oh, we'll come back later. They grab Jason and other Christians and drag them out into the public square with the plan, well, we'll punish these people since we, since we can't find the, the real troublemakers we want to punish. Let's punish the people who are helping them. So, verse 6, they go before the city officials and they are shouting, that's always a good way to handle it, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, that's referring to Paul and Silas, right, have come here too. You can tell that's a bad turn the world upside down, right? Because they're not complimenting them. And Jason is helping them, right? He's helping these people. He's housing the bad guys. And they are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, Jesus. They are criminals. And so they're trying to get them in trouble, Jason and the brothers. So, verse 8, the Jews stirred up the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. They're the officials trying to decide what to do. Have these people committed a crime? Verse 9, so taking a security bond from Jason and the others... They released them. It's interesting how the city officials handle it. I don't know if that's considered a punishment or not. Is that, you know, like, what exactly is that? They don't throw them in jail, but they do release them, but they, they don't just release them and say they're innocent, right? They take a security bond from them, and then they release them. I don't know exactly what this security bond is. It's interesting. Um, I mean, I looked it up. I, 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 can, I can read what different scholars have said about what this is. Um, although I'll tell you this, when you, when you read like scholars that write about the Bible, and if they use the word perhaps like a whole lot, you know that it's speculation. And so, so the, the Greek word, if you look it up, is a word that apparently means like enough or sufficient. Okay, so if you were translating it really literally, it's they took enough from Jason, right? They took that which was sufficient from Jason and then released them. But obviously in this context, it, it's not supposed to be translated so generally. It's about, it's some sort of money. Like there's some money that they took from them and then released them. It might be like what we call bail, right? That it's like, well, we'll take this money and then one day there'll be a court case where we'll figure out whether you're right or wrong and this money is supposed to keep you in town because um, you don't get it back if you, if you skip town. Or maybe it's like a fee. It could be that uh, they took, I'm just, I'm speculating here. So perhaps, perhaps this is like when you get a traffic ticket and you pay the money and you don't ever get it back. Like it's non-refundable. I could imagine that maybe taking what was sufficient could be we take this money from you because you caused this riot or whatever. Um, or maybe it was a deposit. Maybe you get it back. Maybe it's one of those, um, like if Paul and Silas leave town and there's no more corrupt, there's no more like riots and stuff, then, you know, a little, a little later on when everything's like settles down, we'll give you the money back. I don't know what it is, but they take some sort of something from, and it seems to be obviously money, they take that which is sufficient, they take the money from Jason and these other Christians, and then they release them. And what I was thinking about when I read this, I just think it's really interesting. <laughs> these guys have been Christians maybe for just a few weeks, and it's already costing them. Isn't that incredible? These people, I don't know if there were any Christians in Thessalonica before Paul and Silas showed up, 
I don't know how long they had been there at the point that this particular story happens, but I'm, it's pro- they're pro- these are probably new Christians. These people have only been Christians for a little while. And all of a sudden, people are b- banging on their door and saying, where are your leaders? And they seem to be not telling them. And then now they're in trouble because of their belief in Jesus Christ. They're probably getting roughed up as they're getting dragged out to the square. I can't imagine that people said, now come with us, right? They're getting pulled out into the square and now money being taken from them, whether it's uh, like permanently or, or temporarily still. These are brand new Christians and it's, their, their faith is already costing them. And then verse 10, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. Which you think you get a lot from that. First of all, the fact that they sent them off at night, I think means they, they were sneaking off. Because back then, I mean, as far as I know, like there's, there's no street lamps, right? Like when, when the sun went down, it was just dark for a long time until the sun came back up. That's how it used to work. So, so if you're someone back then and you're traveling, when the sun goes down, that's not when you start traveling to another city in the pitch black darkness. You know, you start traveling in the daytime. The fact that they start going to Berea at night means they're sneaking off. That, I'm, I'm thinking that means Jason and the brothers said, you don't want to still be here in the morning. Like you need to go on to the next town so that when the sun rises, they don't find you because this last, that last afternoon was rough. They wanted to find you. you. You better go before morning. And it's also interesting to me that it says, as soon as it was night, it almost seems like the sun went down, then they all met up, which is what makes me think that Jason and the brothers maybe knew where Paul and Silas were. Like when they showed up and they were trying to find Paul and Silas, I'm wondering if Jason and the brothers were like, they're not here. You know, but in their mind, they're thinking, I'm, I'm not going to tell you. Do whatever you want to me. I'm not going to tell you where they are. I don't know that for sure. I'm just saying it looks like as soon as it got night, they all hooked up somehow, right? They all, they all got together, um, and so they must have known where they were or at least how to find them, or maybe it's coincidental, but somehow at night, there they all are, and they say, you've got to go to Berea, and so they do. And so that's the end of our story for today. Next week, if the Lord wills, we will move on to the adventures of Paul and Silas in Berea. But for today... We've learned the story, and as far as application goes, I just want to point out one thing. As far as the what does this have to do with our lives, I really want to focus on verses 6 and 7, what the bad guys said. When they were accusing Jason and the brothers in the town square in front of all the city officials, the thing that they shouted was this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has received them as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, Jesus. That's the accusation that they made. The accusation is that Paul and Silas and these Christians, that they were ruining the world, right? That's what it means, turn the world upside down. That was not a compliment. I know nowadays sometimes we say things like, oh, I want to make a difference in the world. I'm going to turn the world upside down. That's not what this is. They are saying these people are ruining the world. And now the world ruiners have shown up to our town to ruin our town. And Jason is housing them. Jason is helping the bad guys. And they are criminals. They're lawbreakers. They're acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, Jesus. And so I guess I wanted to ask you this question. I wanted you to think this through. I thought it through this week. Were the accusations that the bad guys were hurling at these Christians, were they true or false accusations? Think about it. When they said, this is what they're doing, were the accusations true or were they false? And I thought about it this week, and I think the answer is both. I think in a sense that the accusations are true and there's another sense in which they're false. I definitely can see it both ways and can argue it both ways, and in fact, I will. Let me explain to you what I mean. First of all, I think these are false accusations. 
When they gather these people in the square, the implication of these words, they turn the world upside down. They're helping them because they've had them as guests. They're contrary to Caesar's decrees. They were trying to stir up the city officials in Thessalonica to believe that Paul and Silas and the earliest Christians, including Jason and his brothers, that they were harmful to the Roman Empire, that they were damaging society. That they, were, that they were criminals. They were doing things that if Caesar knew about it, they, he would realize if people knew what was going on, this is, this is bad. The, the turning the world upside down is they are, they are destroying things. They are making things worse. These are bad people. And if that's what they were accusing them of, if they were accusing them of doing things that were harmful to Roman society, then that's a false accusation. Right? The, 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 the earliest Christians in the first century were not trying to overthrow Rome. They were in this empire, and they were not trying to harm the authorities that were in place. I think there were people back then that when there was a Roman official and there was nobody around, like they would go up to him and stab him and then just leave the body there, and somebody will discuss it later, and hmm, there's one less Roman official. And that wasn't what the early Christians were doing. They were not trying to overthrow Rome. They were not trying to cause problems. Okay? In fact, the earliest Christians in the first century, when they were living according to their faith and according to the Spirit... They were the people in the empire who were filled with love and joy and peace and patience and self-control. That's what the book of Galatians says. When you believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, that's what comes out. Love and joy and peace and patience and self-control. When we're cooperating with our God, that's the way we live. The earliest Christians were nonviolent, and they got their cues from their leaders, going all the way back to Jesus, who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and Paul, who told people not to take revenge, and feed your enemy when they're hungry. So we've got this nonviolent group of people who are filled with joy and love and peace, who are working hard and contributing to society. They were taught to work hard. They were taught to work as unto the Lord, as if Jesus was their boss. Even when people weren't looking, they were supposed to be working hard. They were taught to mind their own business and work with their hands. The thieves that became Christians in the, in the Roman Empire were told to stop being thieves and get jobs and work hard at those, those jobs enough that they could make enough money to support themselves and help other people who needed it. So we're talking about hardworking, productive members of society within Rome, people who had family lives that were healthy and, and characterized by love and respect. Right? The Bible, at least that, when they were living as they ought, they were told, husbands were told to love their wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Wives were told to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. Children were told to obey their parents in the Lord. Fathers were told not to exasperate or embitter their children. And they were to be caring for the poor and the vulnerable in their society. The earliest Christians were taught that true religion is helping orphans and widows in their distress. And so the earliest Christians helped orphans and widows in their distress in an empire that had little to no welfare. When nobody else cared about the most vulnerable in society, the Christians said, well, we've got to do this. And so what I'm saying is, when you go back to the first century, the Christians were not turning the world upside down in a bad way. They were being good citizens. In fact, some people might phrase it this way. They were turning the world right side up. And then, in that sense, the accusations are true. So, so in one sense, they're false. They're saying, no, these, these people are trying to you know, upend Roman society. No, that's not true. And yet, they were turning the world upside down in the sense that they, this was a movement that was changing the culture. And yes, Jason really had received them as guests. And were they acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying there was another king, Jesus? I don't know exactly what Caesar's decrees were, but did they believe there was another king, Jesus? Yes, they did. 
And so if the Caesar that was in power wanted blind loyalty from his subjects, ultimate allegiance, you do what I say no matter what. If the Caesar that was in power believed that he was the son of God, like a divine being on earth that deserved the worship of his subjects, and I think most, if not all the Caesars, did believe that about themselves. They did want the people to give them their undying devotion and worship. In those cases, well then yes, of course Christians would be criminals by definition. Because they did believe in another king, Jesus. In fact, they didn't just believe in another king. They believed in a, a higher king. Like it wasn't just like there's Caesar and Jesus, like competitor kings. Right? They believed that Jesus was above the emperor, the ultimate authority in their life. Yes, they honored the emperor, but, not, but, but Jesus was the ultimate lord and had authority over everything. He was their ultimate king. He's the one that they give loyalty and absolute obedience and worship to. And so when the Caesar says, no, that's the way you are to treat me, well, of course they couldn't do that, and of course that makes them defying Caesar's decrees. And in that sense, the accusations were true. And so here's the question. What does any of that have to do with us? Right? That's Christians 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. What does any of that have to do with us? And my answer to that is this. As it was back then, so it is today. Christians, we, when we live as we should, are good for society. We are. I don't care what Twitter says. I don't care. They can say we're, that we're terrible and we're ruining the country all we want. I do not care. We are the people of love and joy and peace and patience and self-control when we are cooperating with the Spirit of God within us. When we are living as we should, we are the people who love our enemies and do not take revenge, and the people of this country have nothing to fear from us. And we are the people who work hard because Jesus said so, right? Because, because in his word, he, his ambassadors told us this. This is the way that you're supposed to live. And so we're supposed to be productive people. And we're supposed to have family lives that are characterized by love and respect, which is healthy for a society. And we're supposed to be caring for the poor and the vulnerable among us. And when we live as we should and we do that, yes, we are, Christians are good for a culture. They are good for society. But if the authorities in our lives ever try to take the place of God and say, it's good that you're good citizens and all, but you owe us ultimate loyalty. We are the, the tippy-top one. You owe us ultimate obedience. In other words, if we were to say, you need to stop worshiping Jesus, then you would, you would obey us rather than him. If and when that happens, then of course, yes, at that point, we become a thorn in their side, hated, and eventually, criminals. And so my application point for you this morning, and this is interesting, I have never said this before here at this church, this is my 11th anniversary at the church, today is, and I've never, I mean, I'm, I, think, I, hope, I hope I've taught what I'm about to tell you before, but I'll, I've never phrased it this way before. So sorry, I'm just getting around to it. Here's the point. Be a good citizen until the day you become a criminal. That's my application for you this morning. Be a good citizen until the day you become a criminal. Let me, what I mean by that is, as a follower of Jesus, be a good citizen for Jesus. Be one of those nonviolent, loving your enemies, take no revenge people for Jesus. Be someone who lives a life of love and peace and joy for Jesus. Be someone who works hard and is a productive member of your society, not just for the money, but for Jesus. And love and respect your family 
for Jesus and care for the poor and vulnerable in your culture and in your city for Jesus. And keep doing that until the day you become a criminal for Jesus because that kind of worship is not accepted anymore. As Christians, we are nonviolent. We are not to overthrow our governments. Paul did not do that when he was attacked. He was attacked by government officials all over the place. He did not fight back. Jesus did not do that when he was attacked. But what I'm saying is, if there comes a day that you are like Jason in this story, you're one of the Christians, you're among the brothers, and they are harassing you because of your faith, because of who you have joined. They're giving you a hard time because of what you believe in. They, let's say you, you, you one day are in a situation like Jason and the brothers in this story, and they extract money from you because of your faith in Jesus. What do you do on that day? And I'm telling you, this is what we do. We don't deny Jesus. We pay the fine, and we keep worshiping Jesus. You post bail, and then you continue to worship Jesus. And if it becomes even worse than that, if it's more than just we take some of your money, if it becomes to the point that they kill us, as happens in some countries, then they kill us and we worship Jesus face to face. But the part of the story that I really wanted you to get is that when the bad guys in the story said, this is what the Christians believe, they believe there's another king, Jesus. I guess what I wanted to be really clear is they were correct about that. That is exactly what we believe. Let's pray. God, I simply ask that the words that are merely of me would be quickly forgotten, but the words that are of you would be remembered for a long time. Help us to be good citizens in our culture, making America, Florida, Ocala better for you. And I pray you'd prepare us for persecution if and when it comes, big or small, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds, but I pray you would prepare us to live for you in the midst of whatever comes next. We love you and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. You are our king. I pray you'd help us to live like that. Amen.